Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, co-host of New Book Network's New Books and Popular Culture, and I'm here today with David Ensminger, who wrote The Politics of Punk, Protest and Revolt from the Streets, and we're going to talk about his new book. So, David, thank you for being here. Hey, thank you so much. So I'm wondering if you could start out by just telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book. Well, if we go back way far, I'm kind of one of those little baby brothers of punk. You know, my brother's 10 years older than me and my sister's uh, seven years older than me. And he graduated from high school in 1980 and would begin to bring home all these records, stuff like um, Susie and the Banshees and Para Ubu and the Cramps and whatnot. And uh, got me at a very early age sort of hooked on it. And my sister sort of followed suit as well. She was a big fan of David Bowie, 999, The Gun Club. And so that became sort of the soundtrack of my youth. So for literally since then, um, I've sort of preserved and archived it and thought about it and written about it in various different ways. And this is my third book on it. My first one was called Visual Vitriol, which took a look at the subcultures within it, for instance, like skateboarding culture, but also looked at queer culture and African-American punks and Hispanic punks and female punks. And it was sort of a conceptual work and it was sort of academic work and it was sort of a uh, a field work, uh, a book. And so f- for people who didn't like that and maybe thought it was too heady or too intellectual or too boring, I put together uh, all the raw transcripts in a book called Left of the Dial. And so Left of the Dial is the actual conversations, the actual transcripts that went and fed into that first book. And some of them have been published in places like I ran my own magazine called Left of the Dial from about 1999 to 2006. So some of them had been in there. Some of them had been Maximum Rock and Roll mm-hmm. and in other places. And so the same thing kind of happened with this. I started publishing in different areas, like in a journal called Liminalities, about slam dancing in the no time zone, about sort of punk liminality and what happens within uh, your sense of time and your sense of sort of chemical balance when you're in a, in a slam pit or a mosh or whatnot. And so that was in Liminalities. Um, the sex section had partly been published previously and a sort of informal essay called Hush Hush, Images of Sex, Bodies, and Rock and Roll, which was an exhibit we did at Western Oregon University almost 10 years ago, looking at flyers and album covers and posters with depictions of the body, and it had been done in fanzines. And the other ones had been published in other places. So I figured, oh, my, I think I got a new book here. <laughs> right? so let's, let's, let's piece it together. What's the theme? And for me, the theme really was about sort of the conscience and uh, the politics, not not politics in terms of like rhetoric and what people were saying, but more or less kind of what they were doing, sort of the praxis orientation of them and sort of following the money trail. Like where was money being um, raised and for what causes and what purposes and who did it affect and so on and so forth. So uh, it wasn't necessarily like going through the lyrics of the dead Kennedys and discharge and whatnot and try to poke through the metaphors and symbols. And we do a little bit of that. I do, you know, talk about Ronald Reagan and whatnot and our right. George Bush. But more importantly, it was, it was about um, sort of punk practices, whether the punk practice is a slam dance, whether the punk practice was setting up a DIY space at a local Grange or at the local mm-hmm. deaf community hall, or whether it was 
um, you know, supporting various efforts, whether medical relief efforts or gay and lesbian issues or anti-war efforts of all different types and stripes and sort of follow that through. And what, what I discovered, I think, is that punk really does have this amazing uh, connection to community that's been sort of overlooked, I think, in most literature. Right. Yeah. And I was really intrigued by that idea because as as I work with punk, we have many discussions in my house. I'm married to a musician about whether punk is actually music or not. Right. Whether we can, <laughs> yeah. you, you know what I mean? Right. Can, right. can you define punk as music or is punk more about these sort of ideologies or these beliefs? Yeah. And so in reading your book, that really made me think about that, like and that connection. Right. What is punk's connection to the communities it's a part of and how does it change? Sure as it moves to different communities. And so like you start with your book with sort of talking about the punk's beginnings, you know, and, and the role of Reagan and the role of Thatcher, which after this interview is happening right after our first presidential debate or a major political (laughs) debate, which made me think about like, because Reagan was um, called on a bit last night and made me think about like how, what has sort of brought punk what attracts punks to sort of politics and sort of this political being and the role of sort of our big P politics in yeah, punk? In small P, yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about sort of that, those punk beginnings and that attraction to yeah. like being political. Yeah. I mean, I think we uh, actually forget that punk sort of gestated under a labor government and mm-hmm. under President Carter. So, I mean, it didn't come under the wings of, of President Reagan. That's when kind of hardcore kind of mm-hmm. blossomed. You know, we know we're talking about 1981. So I think it sort of blows our mind now that, you know, punk would take effect under a relatively progressive government on both sides of, of the ocean. Um, granted, there was maybe a stagnation in the economy. Granted, there were some political crises around the world. Granted, there was inflation and things like that and, and problems with gas and unemployment and whatnot. But um, I think punk has always been um, sort of anti uh, anti-control, anti-government in terms, not, not in terms of like big government, like, you know, you hear from the Tea Party or whatnot, but in terms of sort of rules that sort of impinge upon uh, um, the free will, uh, the spirit of progressive causes, um, for instance, gay and lesbian identities and how that was outlawed for a great number of years. Um, and, and as it moved into hardcore, it moved into the suburbs and it became a little more conservative minded. And you have things like that developed uh, like straight edge and the hair Krishna philosophies and things like that. And then the riot girls kind of seized it back in the nineties. And I think part of that was also sort of that, that new deal that Clinton was making too. So there was a, there was a sense of progress and hope and there's a sense of, uh, of change. And then riot girls sort of rode that and then took it to the next level, which is okay, but not enough. And we need to address like women in the scene and we need to address sexism. We need to address uh, feminism and, and, uh, and all these things that came to come together. And then all of a sudden Bush came to office. And so it's, Punk has always sort of been navigating those forces that be, whether it's parent culture or political culture or military culture or academic culture even, and sort of poking holes in it and opposing it and being um, critical of it in sometimes an anti-intellectual way. But then, you know, in the case of Gang of Foreign Bands like that, in a very sort of really intellectual way. So there's always like this constant critique. And it happens with the communities themselves. They're not just critiquing their parents or not just critiquing the police force and not just critiquing local, uh, regional, uh, national, global governments, but are also critiquing within their own scenes. So if you look at uh, Flipside or Heart Attack or Maximum Rock and Roll, you see these constant conversations going back and forth about different issues, uh, whether it's politics or social issues 
or issues relating to sex or reproduction, all these different things happening. And what's sort of um, amazing is that it never stops. Because it's oppositional culture, there are always going to be, I think, elements of it, and it changes. So like you said, how it navigates across communities or across eras or across different places in the globe. What Malaysian punks are dealing with is different than what punks are dealing with in Russia and in Poland was different than what we're dealing here. And even within the States, you have groups of uh, East L.A. Chicano punks dealing with different issues than somebody in the suburbs of Chicago would deal with and things like that. Um, and so punk kind of comes that constant soundtrack to that. And yes, it is about three chords in the truth, and it is about that sort of naive playing or primitive playing sometimes, but it's equally also you know, about attitude, it's about conscious and consciousness, it's, it's about politics, it's about social fervor, and it's also just about creativity. And you know, I think uh, Dad Kennedy sort of summed that up with Jella Biafra, called it, you know, called it creative crimes, and I think that's a, a part of it as well. Right. And like as you were talking, and it, it made me think, in reading your book, some of the... Fun, some of the concerts that they play were for big name, like fundraising for big yeah. names. But a lot of it was like based in communities. And so as you were researching and as you're talking to people, what are, did you see patterns in any of that? Or was it very much like you were saying in this community at this time, punks just sort of picked up this cause? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it changes all the time, but I think there have been some very consistent things. I think the humanitarian impulse is one of those. So you see a, a lot of aid for UNICEF, you see a lot of aid for the Red Cross, you see a lot of aid for immigrant groups, and that sort of hasn't really changed. And and, and same thing with the labor movement. There's always been sort of an emphasis with certain bands, like uh, in the past was Angelic Upstarts, now it's with bands like Street Dogs, to ally and be in solidarity with the working class and raise money for dole queues or the unemployed or and things along that line. But then sometimes it's very unique to the time and to the circumstance. So I talk really about how punks often help themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so maybe like in, in, in here in Houston, if I may use one example, we had a, a group called the My Dolls and Diana Ray was the bass player. And she was in the, the floor watching another band and a young man um, ran into her and knocked out two of her teeth. And so they had the two teeth benefit. And so I don't think that's being played out across on a global scale, but, you know, it was local and it, and it meant something that was important. So they raised funds for her. And, you know, once in a while, there was a band, I think, called Thoughts of Ionesca who had too many parking tickets. And so they raised money to help pay for those parking <laughs> tickets. Uh, Buff Parrot of the Dicks was put into jail. And so they raised money to get him out of jail. And so, yeah, you're going to have some very, very sort of local issues that speak to the, the immediate communities. But then you also have these broader issues, and especially, I think, when it comes to anti-war and anti-nuclear mm-hmm. efforts and social justice efforts and immigrant rights and stuff that really do resonate across the globe and, and across generations. So do you think that's part of, right, like the Reagan and Thatcher and that sort of move to pushing punk underground in some ways, right, and that hardcore movement? Do you think so we have, like, when with Reagan, if we take the U.S., like right. his role in U.S. politics is, like, had pushed some of those larger social issues, but they were still finding ways to, like, get at that in their communities. Is that... Well, and I, yeah, and I think the other thing we forget about is there was still a large contingent of 60s and 70s radical within the 80s social protest movements, right? right? So you had people who were yippies and stuff that were sort of um, definitely part of like Rock Against Reagan and, and, and Rock Against Racism. And Rock Against Racism had people from the Socialist Workers Party, which was a longtime political mm-hmm. party. And that kind of faded. And so, you know, by the time you get to the late 80s and 90s, that sort of faded out. 
and, and punks sort of um, didn't have to rely on the older generation of radicals. And they sort of uh, pushed the radicalization in different directions, maybe like identity politics, you know, things like that, um, that meant something to them that maybe didn't have the same resonance to an older generation. But it's interesting that within the, in the Reagan years and the Thatcher years, you had we had two different things. In the UK, we forget that punk was like a top 40 genre right. and that the bands would get on top of the pops and things like that. And so they were selling massive amount of records within their communities where in the U.S., you know, there was some maybe with Blondie, a little bit with the Rebounds, a tiny bit with the Runaways. But by the time it got to the hardcore, it was driven underground because there was simply no market for it at the local mall mm-hmm. and at the local big, um, you know, stadiums and whatnot. And at the same time, the, the I think the participation age went down as well. So let's say um, you were 28 in the punk era. By the time hardcore came along, it was about 16, 17, 18 yes. year olds. And so they really, they're bringing to it a sort of whole different consciousness. Right. And so you spend, um, and, and so you move, you start out with really talking about those beginnings, but you move into looking at Washington, D.C. and looking at San Francisco. And so looking yeah. at some of that. So can you talk a bit about the role of punk? You mentioned Fugazi, you mentioned MDC, you talk about, you have a chapter on, on MDC, but can you talk a little bit about the role of those two cities in sort of your research and what you found? Right. And I, th- I think because we, we tend to equate the two coasts with the utmost radicalism, which is right. not to say that there are not radical activities in Austin, Texas. There were. I mean, that's where the MDC came from. Uh, even here in Houston, we had a radical um, sort of left wing activist community um, in Chicago as well, Seattle. But for some reason, I think it, it had more numbers, you know, a, a greater mass because of the proximity to power in places like San Francisco, which had a long time tradition, you know, going back to the anti-war protests of the, um, you know, the uh, prisoners of conscience during World War II and the Beatnik era and then the peace movement and Haight-Ashbury. So it had this sort of rich and evocative tradition. And in D.C. as well, because you had people that were near the White House. And so very quickly they understood um, – whether at Discord Records and at Positive Force, which is a community organization, that you could just literally go a couple of streets over and bring some instruments and bang on them and disrupt business as usual. Right. Or you could have <laughs> concerts in the park, or you could have concerts on the street, or concerts in front of correctional facilities, uh, on and on and on. And I think that you know was sort of that innovative, uh, creative crimes that happened. And then you could put up posters, like I mentioned, Mises the Pig, that campaign, which was quite effective and quite controversial. Um, because you're near the halls of power. And so you can't really do that if you're in Nebraska. You can't really do that if you're in Utah. And so it makes those places kind of special. And I think because of that, um, they develop their own um, sense of legend, right? And their sense of lore and their sense of importance within the punk sort of history. Um, But, you know, L.A. was dealing with some really, really uh, tough times with the police, Uh, local regulation, local codes and things like that. I talked about how kids would be stopped on a regular basis by the police. Um, Some police kept files on young teenagers Mm -hmm. with jagged, weird haircuts. Police would wield batons at shows. Um, They would literally show up with riot gear and try to close down clubs. And, you know, one person said it was if they wanted to destroy punk rock. And that kind of did happen across, you know, the country and probably the globe. Like, I remember seeing Black Flag much later than when they were dangerous, right? But in 86. But I I remember walking out of that club as a young boy and there was a police van and there were uh, police lining both sides of the street. And they said, you know, just come on walking, boy. And kind of like, you know, one hand on the gun or one hand on the baton. And so even by 86, which is like 10 years after, you know, uh, Sex Pistols and Ramones had become 
what they were, um, there was that still sense that punks were a threat. Um, and and it was just that we weren't as close to, you know, the, the powers that be in D.C. or the history of a place like San Francisco, but it still resonated with us and it still felt dangerous. Right. Yes. And there was very much on television and in the media, this idea yeah. that the punks are going right. And that punk rock means anarchy and yeah. fire and right that's all it means i grew up in minneapolis right so i grew uh, up listen you know during this time when uh, maybe a kinder gentler punk in some ways right where you yeah. know husker do and all of this so it wasn't but it was still very much like we're gonna bomb the system and that's all we care about and it's like and this idea that i still have students are like oh so you had mohawks and <laughs> you know like this idea like punk is one thing and that's the right. idea of punk right. Right. Well, what's interesting about Minneapolis is that it had a, a rich tradition. I mean, it was the one, oh, yes. if I remember correctly, the one state that voted for Mondale. Yes, and, it was. I'm very proud long, of that. <laughs> yeah, and a long progressive labor tradition. Yes. A lot mm-hmm. of left wing and socialists and communists up there. And had very radical communities. Profane Existence was a radical community that existed up there and ran their own magazine and ran their own labels. So it has this rich rich history and someone needs to write that book it just doesn't happen to be this one but i i can totally see that happening and in other places as well you know um have the, these very distinct and rich traditions of resistance right um so i await those books for sure but for me you know i i know dave dichter i've, I've interviewed uh ian and the rest of some several people at discord and i just i i needed to have an imprint because i think those stories need to be told now and then at some other point somebody will step and tell the others Right. And and when you're talking, I think about like I think about Discord Records and I think about Fugazi and I think about them and the fact that not only are they in this sort of space, but they are also like have parents who are part of that space. Right. So in some ways they're going home or they're functioning in communities where they get to see the outcome of um, what's happening with the politics or what's happening with those sort of movers and shakers and, and are reacting to that as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, we forget about how many, like uh, Dave Dichter, this connection to the past. There was all this connection to social movements, or it was all this connection to um, issues of racism and, and, and sexism and immigration. I mean, on and on and on. Uh, and that's what we forget. I mean, that's why I call news is like this. I mean, punk is like this news sprint, and it sort of feeds back all the news of the world. Granted, it's in, within a, a given slant, and, and, and granted, it's ground up in the crucible of this mm-hmm. music, right? But it is still a way of delivering the news back to you. And that doesn't necessarily happen in pop music. It doesn't necessarily happen in these other forms of uh, genres of music. Right. No, I, I will say that I think the one that gets closest, well, besides hip-hop, right, we have sort of parallels, is sometimes country, which is sort of scary. And it's a different it's a different view of the world, but there's still yeah. that sort of feedback. Yeah, for sure. One thing you talked about that I would like you to talk a little bit more about it, and it sounds like you've written some more on it, is um, you mentioned the deaf punk scene, right, mm-hmm. in the deaf punk spaces in San Francisco. So could you just share a little bit about that and talk about th- that space and, uh, you know, a little bit about the, that community? Well, it's interesting because it's very personal to me. I was teaching at uh, Western Oregon University, and um, I got a note. Uh, an email from a, a fellow instructor over there who taught ESL. And he says, Oh, do you know about the deaf club? And yeah, I mean, there's a record out, you know, can you hear me? That's a, a compilation of all those bands and dead Kennedy's had just literally released the live at the deaf club uh, CD. And I'm, I was so excited. I was like, of oh, course. I, yeah. He goes, why don't you come and talk about it in my office? I'm like, Oh my God, there's a punk on campus. He's an instructor. You know, you get really, you know, that's a rare thing. You yes. know? And so I ran over there, ran into his office and started, you know, talking a million miles an hour. And he kind of was looking at me slightly quizzically. And I realized he was deaf. 
And uh, so we started exchanging information via notes because I, unfortunately I don't know ACL, ASL. And what I discovered very quickly is that he was an original member of the Deaf Club. So he was a person who was into the Grateful Dead in the early 70s, and then he sort of drifted into punk and discovered it. I think he was at the Sex Pistols concert. Mm-hmm. He had seen Buzzcocks. He's seen Patti Smith. And it opened my eyes to a completely other way of perceiving punk. And it really um, troubled me that no one had ever written about it before, whether it's deaf uh, participants or hard of hearing participants. You know, I had spent time mm-hmm. thinking about women and, and Chicanos and, and, and gay and lesbians, but I had just not thought about that. And so I felt kind of ashamed. And so we communicated back and forth for a while. Unfortunately, we, we became tight and close, but he died before he actually died. Literally, I, I went to go record the interview with him and he was not well. And he died mm-hmm. soon after. Um, but Robert Han- uh, Hanrahan was the manager of the Offs. Uh, which is kind of an interesting ska punk fusion band. And he was very political and he ran across the club in San Francisco. It was on the second floor near the mission district. And he discovered that you could rent it. And, and dev clubs existed as a place for deaf people to go and have social activities, leisure activities and, and a sense of folk group identity and whatnot. But he realized, Hey, we can rent this space out for a, a decent price. It could be an alternative to the other clubs in town. Like, Mabuhe Gardens and things like that. And so they started having these amazing shows with all different kinds of bands. I mean, X played there, the Germs played there, DOA played there, some more avant-garde type bands, uh, Blow Dryers, who I mentioned in the book, played there. And sort of became this alternative space for a couple of years. It was kind of CD. It was kind of dangerous. And the, the, the deaf participants weren't just like, oh, you can take over our club and we'll just disappear in the back room. They were actually participating. And so they would do things like First off, they could feel the vibrations through the floors. From what I understand, they could feel vibrations through balloons if they touched them. They could go to the stage and touch the wooden stage because um, back in the day, most of them were wooden. Uh, They could touch the speakers, and so they could participate. And obviously, they're participating in the visuals as well. Um, And it just, you know, digging through it, it's like, oh, my God, why has no one ever talked about this and so it made me believe, and, I, and this is really true, that there's so much left to do. Like, I feel like I'm just taking baby steps. I mean, literally, it's my third book, and I feel like this is just the baby steps. So my new one is this thing, you know, 120 Women in Punk, and it's the same thing. And then I'm thinking about Native American punk communities and, and, and on from there. So I think that's what good books do. Good books sort of um, shine a light on the gaps in history and in between spaces and then allow for that conversation to change and also develop new areas for conversations. Right. Like I, that was probably the part that I was like, this is really amazing. This is really great. You know, and it's these things where, well, of course that makes sense, right? It moves us sort of into when you're talking about slam dancing and like sort of that physicality of punk and the body. And so I did love that part with the deaf punk stuff was, I was like, I want more. (laughs) (laughs) So can you talk a little bit about then that, you know, that sort of physicality of punk and the role of the body and and the role the body plays in, in not only like slam dancing, but just in general of being, being part of punk. And like one of the things I remember you talked about one of the, um, one of the women you interviewed, one of the, um, how her friend didn't even like punk, but just yeah. being there helped him physically be in a space. Yeah. Yeah. And sort of embody. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's, it's interesting that it's both in and out of the body. And so as a folklorist, you know, we, we love this thing from Victor Turner called the liminal space, right. And allows for a time out of time experience, allows for a certain sense of communitas and it allows for a certain sense of inversion. And those are all just code words to talk about what happens. But, you know, the idea is that when you go into these spaces, it doesn't matter if you're high or low, if you're rich, if you're poor, if you're black or you're white, 
you um, can participate fully and democratically and vibrantly in that space and you kind of own it. And, you know, I guess today we might call it things like safe spaces. And to an outsider, someone we call, you know, sort of edict, they would say, well, that's not very safe. You're, you're bashing each other. You're slam dancing. You're moshing. How's that safe enough? But they, they fail to see the sort of um, choreography of it. They fail mm-hmm. to see the sort of uh, chemical um, communication that occurs. You know, they, right. they fail to see how there's a certain kind of rhythm to it. And so they don't see that stuff, right? And sort of like what I, I think it's akin to is imagine like in the 1960s when some straight person would be walking down the street and see a psychedelic poster. And to them, it's just noise, right? Mm-hmm. And, and But to the person who knows it, to the insider, it speaks all kinds of volumes about, you know, uh, about that subculture. And the same thing, you know, when you go into uh, a, a club, you know, and I, talk, I really like the intimate clubs. I'm talking about like two, 2,000 or 10,000. I think it's a little bit different. But when you're in a club that holds, you know, a few hundred people, there is this intense sense of ownership. There is this sense of participation. There is this sense of democracy. Mm-hmm. And there's a sense of ritual practice, right? And that it becomes about acting differently than you do outside the club. So you may be a secretary, you may be whatever. And we, we read about this all the way back in, in 78, 79, that you, you put on a different clothes, you put on a different persona, you put on an avatar, you become the sort of avatar of the grotesque body and that Bactinian carnival, right? That Jusons mm-hmm. of that, like, you know, spit and slam and spike and uh, stage jump and all this stuff. So you participate it, but it's sort of about embodying this thing and it becoming a performer. And so while the band is on stage performing, you're performing equally. And I think that's what's amazing about punk rock. There's not that sense of passivity. There's not that sense of consumerism. There's not that sense of restraint. It is that it, it is communal in essence. And, you know, Xene is talking at length about this from Cervenka mm-hmm. from X. And I think it's really important for people to realize that it puts you on an equal uh, playing field with that performer. And you participate Ooh. in culture in a way that perhaps maybe you've never had before. And I think it's really important. Right, and I think in some ways you're you're um, pushed to participate in that culture, right? Like you're, if you wanted to, I'm not sure if you would be allowed to just consume it without participating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and in fact, you'd probably be seen kind of you know suspiciously. <laughs> yes, very much so, right? And I know that's what you get when you have like because you know I'm a I'm a punk performer, so I sing, I, I play a tiny bit of guitar, I play drums, so I, I never feel like. I'm observing. I feel like I am in it and documenting it at the same time. Mm-hmm. But you can see why, you know, they might look at somebody a little bit suspicious. If they just kind of walk in and they don't have the right clothes and have the right look. They have this camera and, and then all of a sudden they're sort of being observed kind of coldly and in a calculated fashion. And, you know, punks might say, who the hell are you? This is our space. Get out of our <laughs> space. And you, you, you can understand. And then you know, how do you how do you get in? Well, you get in by you know letting go of all that. You rip your shirt, you smash your camera and and you grease back your hair and you go for it. <laughs> and at that right. point, you know, you become part of that ritual practice and you become part of that sense of communitas. Right. No, I, I've been, I was on, I remember being on a panel talking about sort of how we document punk, right? How we do this documentation and listening to these sort of first wave old heads all going on about how, of course, we don't have any pictures. Why would we do that? We were there. We were participating, right? The <laughs> camera's going to get broken. I'm not going to bring my, you know, I'm right, not going right. to you know, spend money and bring my camera. Like we had to be there. So all I can do is tell you how I was there, right. but I can't really like show you the pictures, right? And so that idea of like, you really were like, when you went to a show, you were part of that scene and i remember you know being at shows where even the band is like we're not we're done playing until you you know do this and i do a lot of work on riot girl stuff so right there was a lot of that in riot girl like 
the girls need to be in the front. The girls got to come to the front, you know, and we're going to stop and we're not going to play until you sort of follow those sort of unwritten rules, right? Yeah, yeah. And Fugazi would enforce things like that. But I want to go back to the whole sense of documentation. Yeah. Because you know, they're sort of seeing it through these hazy eyes of memory. And I can't mm-hmm. hardly remember, you right. know, uh, seeing the clash <laughs> in 79 at the Odeon. And it's like, it's it's kind of false, I think, in a little ways, because I, I think you can do both at the same time. And right. what really... I said inventive people do is they would do things like tape the camera to their hands mm-hmm. and, and they would just sort of shoot in all these sort of interesting angles. So when you, when you go look in at some of the archival photographs, like a friend of mine, Ben DeCumpson, um, uh, he, he DeSoto, he has, a, he has these really awesome crowd angles that you don't really get mm-hmm. if you don't participate. Right. And so, you know, because they're like he's in the middle of like the slam dance. Rupture. He's in the middle of like this crowd commotion. He's in the middle of this um, dancing mass of buzzing bees. Right. Right. You can't really get if you step back and just sort of pop, 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 pop and shoot. And that's sort of like that's not what it felt like to be there. And so, again, there's ways of, I think, participating and documenting simultaneously. Right. And that's my real interest in the zine community, right? Because right, there is right. this way of doing both of those. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, what you're saying reminds me of that. Uh, even though it was very much done for a commercial purpose as the Beastie Boys, the <laughs> I shot that where yeah. let's give our audience cameras and see what happens. Yeah. And all those guys came from a punk background. They came exactly. The, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, they're Jewish hardcore kids from New York and they had seen the bad brands. And so they knew, and then the kind of physicality that's present in punk is just not present. I mean, think about the bad brands. The guy was doing backflips into the mm-hmm. audience and things like that. And that mm-hmm. became sort of normal form. You look at clips of uh, the Olympic in LA and like literally the crowd is surging onto the stage, pushing the band practically off of it. And so we're talking about this immense, change in conventions and that's what you know it wasn't an acdc concert it wasn't a peter frampton concert it wasn't a linda ronstadt concert you know this is an entirely different phenomena and to an outsider it looks messy it looks noisy it looks threatening it looks unruly but to the insider it looks principled and <laughs> ritualistic right. and meaningful and i don't think we're ever going to sort of get over that that boundary of seeing it you know it's difficult to bridge those two divides. Right. No, I completely agree. Um, so one, another thing you, you have a whole chapter on MDC. Yeah. And so can you talk a little bit why you made that choice? Like why, right. So you went between sort of um, Washington DC and San Francisco and you probably could have picked a number of bands to talk sure. about. So why sure. MDC? It's it's actually just super practical. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I guessed it was. There's nothing but I wasn't serious sure. at all about it. So, for instance, uh, there's nothing very intellectual about it either. It's that I had started to do a biography of the band and had gone and at one point had stopped in um, Portland and began to interview them. And they were sort of dissatisfied with not because of who I am but because it wasn't their voice. And mm-hmm. so Dave Dichter uh, chose, chose to do a memoir instead, and then I, I helped him edit it. But I had all this transcription and all this text. I said, well, won't we rework this in the chapter? Because I think that really the lessons of hardcore punk kind of play out in the single band, and they occupied a couple of different spaces. Mm-hmm. So they occupied the South, and when they were the Stains, they had gone to San Francisco, lived in the Vats, um, and had participated in that scene quite fully. But also they were one of the first truly famous hardcore bands right and so they were you know big audiences four to five thousand people might go to see their shows and then they were also some of the first bands to go to places like italy and and tour quite extensively and they're still doing it today so i think it's really 
important to talk about them because they remain consistent and persistent. And that really doesn't happen quite often. And so they're kind of examples of um, sustainability within punk. I mean, they're on tour right now as we talk about this. And um, it'd be very hard for us to see very many bands like that. And so I think I wanted to tell that story because it tells the story of sort of translocalism, how they connect to other places around the globe. It tells about how the, the personal sense of politics versus the sort of sectarian politics they had to deal with. And also tells you about the mutations of the genre and all the changes they went through. It also is just about sort of a story about a band struggling with different you know, addictions, with different band members, um, with getting old. I mean, all these all these things that occur, and that's why I did it. So it wasn't like I, I like okay, I need this one thing. It was like oh, this is this is available to me. I've been working on this, but I think it does tell us this rich and nuanced and interesting and complex story. If we look at one band, it's really telling us about an era, a genre, and a community. Right, and I think that I mean I think it works well. And I appreciate that sort of nuanced look at hard, like we need to think a little more critically about hardcore and what was going on with hardcore. And I think that that, you know, that works. That worked for me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so another thing you talk about, which is really interesting. So at the end of the book, like the the role of sex and pornography and that relationship with punk, which is something, again, coming from sort of a riot girl view of punk and, and doing that. I have a different pol- there's some different politics with that with Riot Girl and some of the things you're talking sure. about. So can okay. you talk a bit about like you said you'd written this sort of before. Can you talk a little bit about that chapter and what brought you to Yeah, and you know, like I said there's there's another whole story to be told and I think mm-hmm. I do mention that there are yeah. people who see it no less as, you know, um um uh, uh buying and selling your body for right. you know, private uh, for a profit and and gain and it's sick and it's disgusting and I talk about all the conversations of Max and Roll back and right. forth. So you'd have columnists talk about it and have letters to the editor. You'd have bands talk about it. But here's the fact. The fact is, is that there's an overlap between the two communities and it has happened consistently, mm-hmm. persistently since the mid seventies. Um, so you had women who were appearing in magazines who were also appearing in bands. We had, in the case of uh, one of the bands on Crass Records, a former prostitute who later became in a band. Uh, and then you had sort of uh, the porn community responding to punk, right? And so you had them doing punk so-called layouts. But all these bands, the Dead uh, Kennedys have played, uh, appeared in Playboy, the Cramps appeared in Adult Magazine. Um, I mean, you could go on and on. Uh, Blondie appeared on the front of Penthouse. So this was happening consistently. And uh, one of the things that was revealing to me was this conversation I had with one of the former, he wasn't in the Plasmatics, but he was in the band before the Plasmatics, who sort of became them. And he was saying that, you know, if you weren't a drug, uh, if you weren't taking drugs or sucking cock, then you weren't really punk. I mean, it was just that happened in this community. And he's talking about both men and women, by the way. He's not, he's not um, relegating that to women. He's saying that it was that kind of community. It was a community of desperation. It was a community of getting things done. It was a community that was centered around Times Square. It was centered around all these subcultures. And uh, I wanted to sort of bring that to the surface. I don't think it's a, a final conversation. I think it's a conversation that just barely begins and I mean, right now we have all kinds of punk porn websites. You have uh, the Suicide Girls, who are sort of a softcore version yeah. of it. But you have um, uh, Burning Angel Productions, and I mean, and then you have Courtney uh, Troubles, who, her real queer productions with features sort of people on the queer spectrum. 
um, making films for their own communities. And San Francisco has a long legacy of, you know, quote unquote, uh, dyke punk sort of films from the, the 90s and stuff. And so I thought, oh, my God, this is one of these areas that has not been tapped into. It's going to be controversial. Not all people are going to agree with me, but I think we need to have a conversation. And what it goes back to is I think about when I think about its relationship to punk, it's about ownership of our bodies. And having the free choice to do what we want with them. Now, we may disagree with what these people do with their bodies, but it is up to them. And um, we need to talk more to them, and we need to document them more, not less. And I think the conversations will forever be richer and more challenging and different. But I think we have a ton, a ton, a ton of work to do in that area. Right. Yeah, I appreciated that real push to thinking about, like, how does this get at positive body image, right? Like body positivity and thinking about um, the ways in which people have control over their body and are accepting of, like one thing you talk about is the acceptance of all body types yeah, and all ways in which we use our body, which sometimes is not the case, right? Yeah, um, especially with the in punk community. And I think mm-hmm. that's one of the things that I really um, don't quite... I don't want to say approve of, but you think, you know, so you, you talk about, you know, the punk body, the unruly body and how it's challenging it is, but usually it's still like a very thin body. Right? Right. Yeah. So, so you got your tattoo, you got your bohawk, you got your leather jacket, you got your Converse sneakers and everything else. And, and yes, you know, you're programming, but it's still the sort of the certain body type. And I think what pornography does is in a way challenges us to understand pornographies. That there's always a market for, um, you know, BBW people, amputee people, little people and everything. And I know it makes a lot of us uncomfortable to think about this, but I, I think we need to think about coming from these communities and seeing ourselves sexually and being left out of it for such a, for such a huge portion of time. And pornography has always existed for thousands of years in one form or another, right? Whether it's a painting, um, whether it's underground literature, they used to print these like little fanzine type things in the right. 30s and 40s. And I think also coming from a queer perspective, it's also quite different too, because within, you know, 60s, 70s gay culture and in queer culture, pornography was part of the community. Um, the bookstores were a gathering point. Um, you know, some people say, well, yes, but there were dangerous places where you might get a disease and whatnot. But yeah, that was sure. There's that element of it, but still it was a place where you could go and be yourself. So on the streets, you weren't allowed to do so in the schools. You were not to do so. It was an illegal activity, but yet when you went to these bars or yet when you went to these back rooms or yet you went to these glory hole places, these were places that it was your, it was your peeps. It was your kin. It was your tribe. And, And we cannot we cannot dismiss that, and it drives me absolutely crazy. I just wrote a new uh, 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 a memoir last year. I helped this guy Gary Floyd of the Dicks write his, and he talks about that. And you know, he's got a, he got an entire song called "Saturday Night at the Bookstore," right, about that experience. And then his his book of lyrics comes out this month that I, I helped him edit as well. And it's sort of he's one of these characters who was in Texas, went to San Francisco, and he is the history of underground America, of, of gay culture, mm-hmm. and sort of the issues revolving around that. But yeah, sure, there's always going to be people about, you know, it is a depiction of sex, and it's going to offend some people, and there's a, a great room for debate, and there's a great room for, for struggle, and there's a great room to criticize, but at least we're getting that conversation pushed forward. I think that's the most important part. Right, and I think in, in what you're saying and what you said in your book, like, there's a difference between this pornography for sale right? Like this pornography for this cultural consumer, we're going to make money off of it. And this idea of like how pornographies like allow sexuality in communities, right? And allow people to explore in safe spaces. Yeah. And that's what I think net porn is so interesting. And I think that's why I had that small section there. I said, let's talk theory before we undress. Right. <laughs> you, know, because, you know, because it allows, you know, you got to think about, you know, even myself, um, you know, I was sexually molested when I was a young age. And I was seven, eight. It was molested twice, both by a female and by a male. And I had a lot of 
discomfort. I was shunned in my community when I tried to talk about it. I had a lot of sex anxiety. And so pornography was a place where I felt comfortable and, and I felt sane and I felt like it reflected sort of the issues that were going on in my head at a young age. And uh, I, I think we forget about that. So there is this moment of sort of sense of community or a sense of empowerment. I'm not saying everybody shares it. Not mm-hmm. all pornography is the same. Some of it's quite disgusting, right? But there's, right. there's, there's a sense of like, we can't talk about it as a whole. And same thing, we would never talk about punk rock. We never talk about women. We would never talk about, and that's why I brought in the plasmatics. And mm-hmm. it was interesting that the plasmatics thing, I thought the last people to support me on that would be maximum rock and roll, right? And, <laughs> but Marion really came out and was just, I couldn't believe how much she wanted to talk about her because I had been shunned. I had, I had literally brought up, um, Wendy L. Williams to a couple, I'm not going to say who, but some, some women punk rockers who I really respect and who mm-hmm. are really cutting edge and are really pushed the limits in their own ways. You know what I mean? Had really sort of been reviled for being disgusting and all this stuff. And they wanted nothing to do with talking about her. Mm-hmm. And I was really surprised. And then I thought, well, okay, the intellectual side is going to condemn me as well. But then, no, like Marion was like, no, I really want to talk about this. And so I, I try to give her as much space as possible to do so. And, and that's why I end with her, too. I'm like, oh, I'm just going to get on her because she's saying some really powerful, interesting right. things. And we forget about sort of the politics. And this is a, this little woman, Wendy, who, was, who did over 200 different sex acts and participated sort of non – she wasn't having intercourse, but she was in three pornographic films and stuff and uh, starts this band on her own terms and is sitting up there with chainsaws, is sitting up there blowing up cars and, and doing jumps and stuff for videos, um, really confronting – and here I am 10 years old watching this on Friday, the television <laughs> show – confronting everything I understood or thought I knew about gender, everything I, I, I knew about sort of roles and, 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 and the sense of what women are and what, and what they do. And I think that's what a lot of us are like, oh, my God, this, 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 she was a game changer. But yet there's a whole movement, I think, who say, no, 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 no. She was just like this awful performer. She was cheesy. <laughs> she was self-serving. But yet she was a, you know, a lifetime vegetarian. She was a humanitarian. She, she took care of animals. I mean, on and on. You could go on and on. She put out these amazing concept records. She got beat up very severely by the police in Milwaukee, mm-hmm. um, who, who severely damaged her. And I think we forget about the risk that she took every level within the sex community, uh, within the record community, um, within the punk community for these choices she made. Right. And that's a big thing about punk, right? Like taking that risk and putting yourself out there. And in some ways, like that is this embodiment of what, what we're asking for. Right. One of the things I really liked was that idea of anarchy through indifference. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, so there are, I'm sure things you didn't get to talk about that you wanted to talk about in your book. Right. Like, and, and so in some ways, you mentioned a little bit some of the homophobic stuff. You talk about the bad brains in some ways, right. but like, so were there things that you just didn't have room for in here that you really wanted to push at as well with the politics that are going on in, um, in punk now or. Well, yeah, I mentioned that. I, I talk, I sort of talk a little bit about the Occupy movement and mm-hmm. I sort of mentioned the WTO, but I think there's other people who have much uh, larger investments. I was not part of the, Occupy movement. I was not part of the WTO movement. And those, I think, are, are very compelling. I think they're uh, a very important part of recent punk history. But I thought, you know what? Somebody else needs to do that. I think um, they're going to have much more knowledge. They're going to have much more input. They're going to have much more passion about that. 
And the reason I didn't go further into the homophobia is because I wrote a whole chapter in, in Visual Vitriol about queer punk. And in that one, I really outlined how problematic punk has been and how ambivalent it has been to queer culture for decades. And so I didn't want to go too far because people say, well, I bought your first book. Why are you repeating yourself? Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I do that. that's why it's it's sort of told and funneled through Dave Dichter. And I think we really needed her perspective and, and the reason MDC was so bothered was not just that there were Rastafari's and that they seemed to have a kind of backwards look at both women and, and queer culture, but because they were the same age. And I think mm-hmm. that's what we forget and that it's easy to dismiss it in a seventeen year old or eighteen year old, right? And say, right. Well, you don't know better. You're kind of ignorant. You're kind of being led by your parents and whatnot. But when you're literally 24, 25, it becomes a whole different issue. And I think that's what sort of Dave gets at, that we shouldn't have. And, I, and, and, I, and they were one of the bands who did not let them get away with it. Other people, I think, maybe turned a blind eye, but they did not. They wrote a song about it, right? They encountered them. And I think I, I wanted to tell that story through Dave rather than sort of condemn because I, I had sort of done that already and sort of talked about the bad brains and, my, and, and visual vitriol. Mm-hmm. But, you know, um, you know, there are some recent stuff. I, I, the book was run over a period of two years. I wish I could have talked about this recent campaign. I wish I could have talked about <clears throat> the ugly head of punk rock and supporting sort of libertarian causes because I right. think some libertarian sort of mask um, other issues that are, are sort of worrisome. Um, and, you know, th- there are a number of punks supporting Donald Trump. I mean, there has been a, a segment of the punk population that's been kind of conservative leaning. I mentioned a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. I think I used uh, Really Red as the Crucible for that, where you could have two people in the same band have two very different visions of American government. Right. And, and civic responsibility and things like that, taxation and whatnot. But, yeah, I couldn't. I mean, it was interesting. All this stuff happened this last year. And it was like, well, at this point, we're in the editing phase. Right. And, <laughs> you know, the copy edits. And we're, we're checking our spelling. And, unfortunately, we can't do this. So that's my one regret is that um, I felt like there's all this potential to talk about stuff right up until today. And we were unable to do that. Right. Well, that's another book, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do. I think that idea that just because you're going to a punk show does not mean they're going to have the same politics, whether big P or small P politics that you do. Right. So what does that mean and how does that play out? Yeah. And so what, what I, I sort of miss too is, you know, there's nothing wrong and with identity upon it, the politics and it's done quite a bit and having conversations about sort of the um, continuum of sexuality the, the role of gender and making up one's identity and the struggle for something as simple as a bathroom. And I think these are actually really important things to talk about. But I sort of also at the same time miss these other discussions about things like Aleppo or what's happening in China and the crackdown mm-hmm. on rights and what's happening with the program in Iran with nuclear weapons. And we don't quite see that conversation happening as much currently. It doesn't seem like now there's not I'm not saying there's no bands doing that. But it doesn't seem like they're um, pulling the weight of like the Dead Kennedys or Crass or or bands like that did. Um, you have Against Me, and I think Against Me are this really amazing band, and they're really on the forefront of talking about sort of queer culture and trans culture. And then you have Bad Religion, who's still very right. much thick of things, and they're still every album they're sort of addressing the complex geopolitics of our time. But I'm, I'm not seeing a ton of young bands sort of pick up that and run with it and and that's sort of like and like okay so why is that you know and and mm-hmm. that's another book to be written which is has there has there is there a different politics happening under my foot that i'm not even quite aware of right yeah that was sort of my next question right that idea of like where are we going right so we've got this we've got this sort of grounding in this like this 
political practice and these connections to community and because community, because of the internet, right? Because of the accessibility where like 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, like it was like you had to write a letter to somebody, right? I had to wait for it at the mailbox, you know, like that idea, like we don't have to do that anymore. So like, where is punk going now that our communities are becoming larger, right? And we can participate in larger communities. Like what's that next move or is there like, or is there, is there not, you know, sort of what you're saying, you're not seeing that as much. Well, yeah. And then the other thing that we have to think about, you know, we're sort of in the, like, I know you, you study Riot Girl and it's a very profound thing that happened, but there's a whole post-Riot Girl generation. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I ran into, there was a, a band, all-female band that played recently in, in town here and they were fantastic. And I went up and talked with them afterward. And I, I think I dropped some mention of Riot Girl and they sort of shunned me and like, hey, man, like, you know, that's so elitist. And that was so wild. <laughs> So, they, you know, they considered them sort of elitist that most of them had been college educated and university educated and they were not working class or they were not poor and they were not they were primarily women who were Anglo. They were not women of color and things like that. And those are all legitimate, I think, critiques and legitimate concerns. But it made me realize very quickly that I'm sort of, you know, at age 45, I am kind of an outsider. I am the old man. I represent the old order <laughs> and that they're pressing ahead with their own concerns and their own um sort of um, investigations and analyses right. and, and whatnot. And sort of, and so you, you find yourself taking notes. Oh, must take note on that. Right. 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 <laughs> you know? and, and I'm sure it's happening in, in all over the country and all over the world. And, but it, it, I was saying after that, you know, the, the, the internet really aggregates information in ways that fanzine simply could not. And it right. does it in a, in a, in a very uh, crowdsourced fashion. And it happens simultaneously almost at the time it happens because people are uploading things and, um, and whether it's using Skype or whether it's using video, whether it's using Periscope, whatever they're doing, they're Snapchatting in ways that fanzines can never, you know, fanzines were hampered. Um, we were, we were, you know, there was locale and geography that got in the way. There was the cost of production that got in the way. There was a distribution networks that got in the way because they were so small usually. And so, you know, punks are communicating in ways that we could not even have imagined back in, you know, when I was growing up in the 85, 86, much less my brother in, in 79 and 80. And so I think we're seeing it played out in much different ways, but we're also seeing it played out in real time, which mm-hmm. is not what we're used to. You know, imagine, you know, a band, you know, you know, putting a record out. It took a year or two. They're making choices. They're making edits. It's going through distribution. It finds up in your record store. But literally today, a band can take an issue uh, that concerns them, whether it's a, somebody getting beaten in Ferguson or maybe it's the bathroom situation in North Carolina or right. maybe it's what's happening with Donald Trump. And they could literally go into a room, um, put their Mac on and, you know, record it. And next thing you know, it's being streamed. Right. And that kind of response time is is very new. And then it aggregates because you're going to have the feedback instantaneously of people from all over the globe. And so the conversation is very heated. Uh, it's, it's very crowdsourced and it's very kind of um, beyond the imagination. I mean, kind of staggering, I think. And I think academics are still those of us who weren't schooled in media theory as much are sort of still trying to catch up with that and what the implications of that is. Right. Exactly. So what we've been talking for a while. So what are your, what's, what's your next um, adventure? What's the next project? Well, you know, on Facebook, I've been doing this, uh, these postings called 120 women in punk. And at first it was just a matter of me calling through my old archives. Cause I edited my own magazine. I've done a ton of interviews and, um, I just wanted to sort of pay witness to all these women who sort of shaped my understanding of punk. 
and at, you know, have them take their place in history and, and do it from a fanboy perspective, right? Mm-hmm. So this is me. And then what I'm going to do with it, though, is I'm going to contact as many as possible and get input from the bands as well or the members as well. So I'm talking about it with PM Press right now. I'm not sure if they'll run with it. It sounds like they want to. But the idea is that you would read this and sort of be, you know, today was um, gay advert of the adverts. Mm-hmm. I recently did Blondie. I, I, and I've done a number, of, I think I did 49 so far. And so what you offered up is sort of my sort of critique of it. And where does it fit into sort of um, the genre? Where does it fit into punk history? Where does it maybe fit into the the, the discussions of the time. And then what I'll do is many times I'll contact the women and then say, Hey, you know, you have an equal number of words in which you could either respond to what I'm saying, or you could have an overview or you could have your own pointed discussions in whatever direction you want to have it. And I don't think anything exists like that on the market. So it's not just like a reference tool where, Oh my God, I'm going to look up these 120. It's a conversation happening between kind of me writing history and then making history. Right. And, and, and how those two relate and, and the sort of conversations we'll have. So hopefully, Hopefully that's going to happen. Like I said, I'm about one third of the way through it and we'll see where it goes. So what made you pick 120? <laughs> Just a random number? No, 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 no. I had done, I had done an earlier project. I, I have like a million projects, but this project was 120 days of, of the art of Randy Biscuit Turner, who I mentioned in this book. And he was a gay performer, one of the few out performers. What people don't realize is that, you know, him and Gary Floyd of the Dicks were performing as out queer males in the 1980s while well, like Husker Du was not. I mean, right. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. They were gay, but they weren't performing as such. Right. No, yeah. Where these two were, they were very confrontational, bringing the underground um, to the surface, um, talking about taboo subjects and taboo sexualities and things like that. <clears throat> so I did this project called 120 days of his art, where it was just like, could I do this? And I just, okay. and it was a random number at the time. And I basically, uh, you know, I see it as being kind of like four months or whatnot. So mm-hmm. it's like, can four months, can I create, um, a conversation about this person. Could I reinstate his place of history? Could I shine a light on what I think is his achievements and maybe think about some of the controversies involved? And I did. And and then people were like, "Wow, like this is I can't believe you did that. Like that that, that takes commitment." And I realized, well, I should have this commitment to other things, right? <laughs> and so I mean, it's really it's a challenge. And I wish all of us would take up this challenge. And can we shine a light? whether it's 120 times or 90 times or 500 times. And I think one of the reasons I figured I could do it is because I have all these other blogs. So one of my blogs is the Punk and Politics blog where I have over 500 images of punk flyers that show where money is going in terms of fundraising. Mm-hmm. I have uh, a women in punk site called women in punk dot I'm sorry, punk women dot wordpress dot com, which has over a thousand images just from my collection of women in punk. Just from my collection. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's, and I'm not done with it. So there's <laughs> way over a thousand, and one on African American punks, and that's well over, that's reaching 1,000 at this point, because for so often these people have been written out of history, right? right. So there's these immense gaps and these immense holes, and it's up to us, and I think the challenge is if we really want to take punk forward into the future, we have to go back a little bit and fill in those gaps and make sure that it is as democratic and participatory and diverse as what we knew it was, right? Because we were there, we knew it was, for some reason it's being lift, left out of the canon, it's being left out of the literature, and it's up, you know, we need to patch through that a little bit. And yeah, so it seems relatively random, but it sort of relates back to my efforts on the websites, it relates back to earlier efforts to shine a light on, uh, in this case, Biscuit Turner. Right. Awesome, awesome. So one last question, just today or right now, at this time, your top five favorite punk bands. Uh, <laughs> Can you do it? Can you do five. it? 
Like Razor Cake asked me to do my top five, and I hardly ever submit to it. Like, you don't have to. Uh, no, and, and well, who I, are you listening talking, to right now? You know, what are the bands uh, I keep going back to? And um, it's going to be the stuff that affected me in my youth. Like right. the other day, I was listening to Jeffrey Lee Pierce and the Gun Club. I could listen to the Buzzcocks continuously. <laughs> I never give up on the Ramones. I still think the Sex Pistols are frightening. Right? <laughs> uh, I love. Um, uh, the adverts were just, I, I wrote this like a thousand words on the advert at four o'clock in the morning. I was like, I have to, Blondie, you know, it's one of these women that you kind of, you She's underestimate, genius. you underestimate mm-hmm. the power of her because she, you know, she became so huge and she was putting out sort of tropical jazz after a while. And it's like, oh, but I went back and I was going through the catalog. And I'm like, it was so amazing. It was so rich. It was so new. It was so powerful. That literally I got up and had to write about her. I'm mm-hmm. like, I, I, it was like a virus. And I was like, I have to say what I need to say about Debbie Harry. And she's brilliant. And right. I still listen to X. I think Xine Cervenka, not just because of her vocal style, but also because of the art she makes. She makes this wonderful sort of punk folk art. And so these are the bands I, I can go back to and I never get sick of. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Thank you, David, for talking to me today. It's been wonderful. And again, I was talking to David Ensminger about his book, The Politics of Punk, Protest and Revolt from the Streets.